Well, good evening, everyone. It's really uh, good to see you all. Thank you all for coming along tonight. As Nick mentioned, this is the second of our studies in the book of Nehemiah. Tonight, we're picking up at Nehemiah chapter 3, and we're going to begin by reading the whole chapter together. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, we're at page 399. Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built. And next to them Zachar the son of Imri built. The sons of Asana built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. Next to them Merimoth the son of Uriah, son of Hecos repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Bechariah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joiada, the son of Pasia, and Meshullam, the son of Basodia, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Metaliah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moronathite. The men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, son of Harariah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabiah, repaired. Malchijah, son of Haram, and Hashab, son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Bethhecarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Colhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section, opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Barak, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hazok, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. 
Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshalem, the son of Bechariah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chambers of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. I'm sure you can all imagine my enthusiasm as I was preparing this talk when I realized I would have to read all of those names out loud. You could be forgiven for wondering why we don't just summarize these verses and skip straight ahead to chapter 4 instead. Why are we spending half an hour looking at a list of names and locations? Well, bear with us because this chapter is vital to our understanding of this book. And with just a little bit of work, we'll also see that chapter 3 is full of surprisingly practical lessons for all of us. This record is a challenge for any believer in the Lord Jesus. Because if we read it carefully, this chapter invites us to examine the nature and the effectiveness of our service for the Lord. We're going to think about four things from this chapter tonight. Firstly, we're going to remind ourselves of what work these people were doing. Secondly, we're going to see who was involved, who it was who did the work. Thirdly, we're going to think about the character of their work. Then finally, we're going to see some of the results of their work. So firstly, what work were they doing? Nehemiah is set circa 445 B.C., Israel had been carried off into exile in Babylon because of their disobedience to God. Jerusalem, the holy city, was destroyed by the Babylonians around 586 BC. Then decades later, once the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Persians, some of the Jews began returning to their land, and they rebuilt the temple. Then in 445, Nehemiah, who was an official of the Persian king, was told by some of his fellow Jews how this great city was now lying in pieces and how the people of Jerusalem were suffering shame because of it. And Nehemiah felt a burden from God to do something about this. So he got the king's permission to go back and rebuild the city section by section, gate by gate. He went and inspected its walls, and then he approached the officials and the nobles of Jerusalem with a building plan. Some of it was rebuilding from scratch, Some of it was repairing and strengthening what was already there. But it wasn't just for the sake of their own security. And it wasn't even only for the sake of their own reputation. Jerusalem was the city where God had set his name. Nehemiah mentions that in his prayer in chapter 1. Jerusalem was meant to be like a beacon on a hill. Like a lighthouse to the world. Shining God's truth for all the nations to see. And now, of course, it was in ruins. 
So in chapter 2, Nehemiah challenges the people of this city to rise up and build. This was the work of the Lord. And chapter 3 is all about the beginnings of this work, how Nehemiah led the people and how the people responded as a whole to Nehemiah's challenge. And the people who were doing this work were part and parcel of this grand design. This was very much a group effort. But who were these people? Secondly, let's look more closely at the workers themselves. What's obvious from this list of names that I may or may not have pronounced correctly is that a lot of people were involved in this project. As we glance down this roster, there is a broad spectrum of people. By rights, all of the Jews in Jerusalem had a responsibility to be involved in some way or another. And chapter 4 says that anybody who had the mind and heart to work wasn't excluded from that work. Anybody could be involved from any background, any social class, any profession, even people who on the face of it might have seemed completely unsuitable. There were priests and Levites, there were goldsmiths, there were perfumers, there were merchants, rulers of parts of Jerusalem and other areas. There were even people who weren't natives of Jerusalem at all. There were people from Jericho, Tekoa, Gibeon, Mizpah, Zanoah, beth Hakarim, Beth-Zer, and Keilah. Even though they weren't natives, even though there was no direct benefit for them in doing this work, they shared this vision that Nehemiah had, and they wanted to help Nehemiah to fulfill it. Maybe the most interesting group of outsiders that we come across are the people who came from Jericho. Jericho, of course, being the famous walled city from the book of Joshua. Jericho was Israel's first enemy whenever they came into the promised land. God made the walls of Jericho fall down, and he gave the city to Israel. It's a measure of God's grace, I think, that men from Jericho were now building up the fallen walls of his own city. Enemies were now counted among the ranks of his people. His enemies were now working for him. And that's the gospel, of course, isn't it? That people like us, people who were far away, people who were enemies, can become his own people through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's also striking as we look down this record is how willing everybody was. Nobody made excuses. Nobody used their position in society to get out of doing their bit. The priests and Levites had the very best excuse of all. They could have well argued that by lifting rubble and clearing debris, their hands could have been defiled by who knows what. Priests simply did not do this kind of work. But it's interesting that they were the first ones who were mentioned. They took the lead in building the sheep gate. In the same way, the perfumers, the goldsmiths, and the merchants could also have wriggled out of it by saying that they had businesses to take care of. The craftsmen could have said that they weren't cut out for this level of manual labor. They were used to a more delicate kind of work. The rulers and leaders could have argued that their high standing put them above menial work like this. But there isn't even a hint of that kind of attitude anywhere in this chapter. The most unlikely of people were all willing to get their hands dirty. If someone looked in from the outside over those broken walls, they must have wondered to themselves, what are all of these different types of people doing 
working together. We're very fortunate to have something very similar today in the church. The church is made up of all different kinds of people from all different kinds of places who have all come together because of our common faith in Christ. We have all been made one body in Jesus. We are his body and he is our head. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that as diverse as we are, we are all members of that one body. He says, the body does not consist of one member, but many. And just like our bodies carry out the commands of our head, the church is here to do the exact same thing. We are here to do God's work in the world. We are here to be like a beacon on a hill, shining God's truth. To influence our world for the Lord Jesus. And nobody is exempted from that work. If we are in the body, we all have a part to play. There is a different section of the wall for each of us. Although, let's be honest, we're not always quite as willing as these people in chapter 3 were. We can all be very good at making excuses for why we can't do something for God. Very legitimate excuses that we're too busy, that we'll have a family to look after, that we're not confident enough, that it's outside of our comfort zone. Reasons that every single one of those people in chapter 3 could have used. Most of them didn't know each other. Most of them had never done work quite like this before. Most of them had families. But they still did the work. Why? Because they had a heart for the Lord. Sometimes certain kinds of work are not suitable for us, and that's fine. But can I gently suggest that if we keep saying no when any opportunity arises to serve the Lord, whether it's in hospitality or the catering team or in outreach or shaking hands at the door or as a leader in rally or handing out literature or even as a prayer partner, can I suggest that we should maybe check our hearts to see if they're really in tune with God's heart. As a member of the body, we need to be willing to serve, and we need to be willing to be useful to him. We're having a community week coming up here in August, and that might be a chance for all of us to put that willingness into practice. So Nehemiah had a diverse and willing workforce. But what was the character of their work? Thirdly, let's see what their work looked like. There were three things that characterized these people's work. Faith in God, unity, and high standards. The most fundamental underpinning of this whole undertaking was their faith in the Lord. In the last verse of chapter 2, Nehemiah confidently says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. Before they had put one brick upon another, faith was the fundamental cornerstone. Without the boldness that came from trusting fully in God's help and blessing, they would have accomplished nothing at all. I wonder if the same could be said about our own work for the Lord. When we go to rally on a Friday night and it's It's our turn to do the talk. 
I wonder, do we go with faith that God is going with us? Do we truly believe the God of heaven will make us prosper? That he will speak through us to someone who needs it? Now, it could be very easy to go along and feel that we're not really up to the task. That God can't really use us the way he might be able to use somebody else. And if we go in with that attitude, I honestly don't know if we can expect him to fully bless us the way he might want, us, the way he, the way he might want to. Why don't we get into the habit of praying, Lord, I'm going here tonight for you, and I'm going here tonight in faith. Not trusting in myself, not trusting in my own abilities, but trusting wholly in you to bring blessing to others through me. Practice faith in God and see what happens. The second thing we notice is that they worked in unity. These assorted individuals who most of the time had nothing to do with one another worked side by side in harmony as a team, systematically repairing and rebuilding section by section. Nehemiah had planned this project very carefully. He planned it out very well. This wasn't a free-for-all. But for his systematic approach to the buildings to succeed, they couldn't butt into one another and hinder one another and interfere with what each other were doing. They all had to be on the same page. And I think that harmony came from a clarity of vision about what they were doing and why they were doing it. They were all of one mind about this. They were very, very clear about what the outcome should be. But they were also very clear about what their individual roles within that strategy were. Each person had their own distinct section to work on. It was very individual. Some of the jobs they had to do were more humble than others. Some seemed far less important on the face of it. But as far as we're told, there was no infighting, there was no envy, there was no rivalry, there was no one vying for position or importance. They all worked as one body, fulfilling the vision. And that's what a body is meant to do, isn't it? Whenever Paul wrote to the Corinthians that they were the body of Christ, that is exactly the kind of practical unity that he had in mind. He said they were all members of that one body, not divided, but together. No two members the same, and no two members with the same work to do, but every one of them equally important. Paul goes on to say, if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Don't ever be tempted to look around you at others in the church and say to yourself, that person's more important than me. That person has a more important role than I do. You are absolutely vital to this body with your distinct God-given gifts, with your specific God-given function. 
He has a job for you and for you alone. And if you don't do that job, there's going to be a section of the wall left unfinished. God has arranged each member very carefully to build up and strengthen his church. And your contribution to that is key. Be confident in how valued you are by God. But like Nehemiah's workforce, we also have to be united. Because if we're not united, the body stops working right. The body stops doing what it's supposed to do. Picture the same thing happening inside our own bodies. If something inside us suddenly stops working or starts attacking another part of our body, we stop functioning, don't we? Eventually, we might start to break down. And that can happen quicker than we can think in a church. I wonder, as we look at our own body here in Crescent, do we see harmony? Do we see unity? Do we see a shared vision? Or is it possible that we are ever guilty of what Paul warned the Corinthians about when he told them to take care that there be no division in the body? When he encouraged them to have the same care one for another. Do we care for one another? The way that God intended? Enough to put aside our differences and our disagreements and our opposing points of view and love one another practically? Or do we spend more time talking about other people behind their backs than we do caring about them? Because they said this, or because they said that. Or because they were given this role in the church, and you weren't. Even though you deserved it. Or because you've been undermined in some way. Now, I don't for a second want to minimize genuine issues. But if those issues are taking the place of caring for each other, Paul would say, that's a body that's breaking down. Let's pray earnestly for a heart of mutual love and care and unity that's mature and courageous enough to look past all of those things for the sake of the glory of God. Let's pray that God will give all of us a fresh vision of his plan for this church. That we'll be of one mind with a clear vision and a clear sense of our own individual place within his plan. Thirdly, they didn't only work in faith and unity. Look at the quality of their work. It becomes clear once the rebuilding was finished that they must have worked to a high standard. Their work stood up. They didn't slack off or skimp on quality. Now, they didn't have very many new materials to work with. They mostly had to make do with what was already there. And don't forget, this was a group of volunteers They weren't being paid for what they were doing. But nobody used that as an excuse to phone it in or to give anything less than their best. They worked their very, very hardest for God. For Nehemiah, quality was every bit as important as quantity. How they worked was every bit as important as how much they worked. He was very good at getting the best out of his people. 
And he did that by giving them a sense of personal ownership over what they were doing. He organized some of them to work on sections of the wall that were close to their own homes. So obviously, they would be giving it their all because the security and the well-being of their families depended on it. And he put other people into areas that would interest them. For example, the priests built the sheep gate. And the sheep gate was near the temple. It was where the animals were brought to be sacrificed. They would have had a real sense of ownership and a real sense of importance about what they were doing. It would have ensured high-quality work. And high-quality work was so important because otherwise what they were doing wouldn't last. It wouldn't stand the test of time. Again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church that Christ is also very interested in the quality of our work. He's not only interested in how much we do, he's very interested in how we do it. One day, every Christian will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And this isn't where Christ judges sin. This is where he judges the work that his own people have done for him. Paul says, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. He is going to carefully examine what we have done for him. That's a scary thought, isn't it? He's not going to just glance over a list of every sermon we've ever given or every person we've ever spoken to about him or every team we've ever been on and say, well done, it looks like you've done a lot of work. He's going to take the magnifying glass and look at it up close. Not just the quantity, but the quality. He's going to judge whether or not we have given him our best. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me a bit of a wake-up call. Imagine your boss gave you a job to do just before the end of the day, and you've rushed through it because it's fast approaching five o'clock, and you've said to yourself, that'll have to do. But if you knew beforehand that your boss was going to examine that work under the microscope the next morning, your standard of work might be a bit higher. In Christian service, it's very easy to say, that'll have to do. Because all of us are busy. But it won't be as easy to say, that'll have to do, when we're standing before Christ, will it? I love watching MasterChef. And when the contestants played up their main course or their dessert with only a few seconds to spare and they're running frantically around the kitchen... It normally looks pretty good on the plate once they throw it all together. Until, of course, they take the plate up to Greg Wallace. And he looks at it a bit closer when he cuts into the chicken supreme and it's pink in the middle. Or he puts a spoon into the souffle and it falls apart into a big puddle of goo. And you can see in the contestants' faces how devastated they are that they haven't given it their best. Do we really want to feel that way at the judgment seat? God demands your very best. And we can work to our very best for him. Because God gives us ownership over what he has given us to do. Yes, it's his work, but it's also our work. It's a work that is specifically tailored to the gift that he has given you. Allow him to use that gift and use it as if what you're doing is the most important thing in the world. 
Give it everything you've got. David Gooding said, we shall not do the Lord's work effectively as a hobby. We have to give it our all. So that's what characterized their work. But let's see finally and very briefly some of the results of that work. The most obvious result in chapter 3 is that the workers' names were recorded and remembered by Nehemiah. Every individual, who they were and what they did, was written down. They found a place in the record. God keeps a record of his workers and what his workers have done for him. Even the humblest service isn't overlooked. Just look at verse 14. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Bethhecarim, repaired the dung gate. Now, the work that he was doing was not very enviable. It wasn't the most glamorous section of the city to be working on. The dung gate was where the city's rubbish was taken out and disposed of. It would have been very easy to overlook what Malchijah was doing. I'm sure very few of his fellow workers ever saw what he was doing. But here, he gets singled out for special attention. And here we are, reading his name 2,000 years later. Every time you do something for the Lord, and you wonder to yourself, does it even matter? Be assured that every time you've set out the tables for Sunday school, or you've swept up the front steps outside this building, or stacked up the chairs after the prayer meeting, or cleaned those toilets, God has seen it, God has valued it, and God has recorded it. These people weren't reimbursed financially for what they did, but they were rewarded with something eternal. They were rewarded with a place in Holy Scripture. And we are also promised an eternal reward for faithful service. 1 Corinthians 4 says that whenever Christ comes, each of us will receive our commendation from God. Not only is our work recorded, our work is rewarded. Paul says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to get it perfect every time. It doesn't mean that everything we do has to be completely successful in the eyes of the world. But if it's quality work, if we have given him our best, he'll reward us. But Paul goes on to say, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Some people will suffer loss. They will still be saved, but what they have done will be blown away in the wind. Because what they have done has not been built to last. For some people, the souffle will fall apart. And they will lose the reward that they could have had. Some people in chapter 3 missed out on their reward. Verse 5 says that the nobles of the Tekoites wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord. For whatever reason, these people wouldn't take part. They had one opportunity to be involved, and they chose to turn away from the work. Let that be a stark warning for all of us. The Lord also keeps a record when we choose not to work. And that doesn't mean that we're not saved anymore. Please don't misunderstand. But we can lose out on our reward. Don't let that be 
what the record looks like for you. Don't lose out on your reward. So to finish, what can we take away from chapter 3? Well, this amazing work for God that we have read about, that ultimately was successful, was made possible because this diverse group of people trusted in God's help. They were willing to use their abilities and work together in unity with a clarity of vision, giving him their very best. And whenever each of us care enough about God's glory to put our faith to work, if we're willing to use whatever gifts he has given us, if we're working in faith, with unity, always giving 100%, we can accomplish great things for God today. We can shine his light for a world that's stumbling in the dark. May God help us every day as we work together for him.